Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. As always, I'm your host, Harim Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you listening to this podcast. I hope you guys have been doing well since we last spoke. I know that I've been on break and so I haven't really produced any podcast episodes and it's about a, I guess, a month and then so break. But I will be honest that I really did need it largely because of the fact that you know, I, I had other things that came up, and also because uh, I will admit that it is quite time-consuming making a podcast on a bi-weekly basis, and really, it, it was just that, you know, I guess life and other stuff also just kind of caught up, and so it was nice to kind of take a break. So I hope you guys have been well uh, since uh, the last episode. I know that, you know, I've been enjoying the summer, so I hope that, you know, wherever you guys are located as well, that you've been enjoying the summer as well, and that you've been able to do, you know, the, the usual kind of summer activities uh, that most of us plan for, uh, and that, you know, again, hopefully that nothing has uh, gotten in the way of that either. Um, on the other hand, I also wanted to say that, um, you know, I, I think with the, the podcast as well, that I will probably be making some adjustments as to how frequently I... Uh, put up uploads for uh, podcast episodes. Um, and this isn't because, you know, I'm not, you know, committed to the podcast or anything. I really do enjoy making episodes, but I do think to some degree that maybe spacing out episodes from time to time might be something good just to sort of give a bit more effort or time for me to produce the episode and to put more kind of research and thought behind an episode as well. You know, so that will probably be something that you'll see for, for the next season. Uh, but for now, you know, I'll try to put out at least three more episodes for the rest of the summer. Just because, again, I, I am still busy throughout the summer. I'm sure, as you guys know, there's a lot of things that get planned during the summer. Especially since for like the past two years, we've had, you know, COVID-19 and all these other lockdowns and whatnot during the summer which has really obviously impacted the ability for people to do things. So there's been a lot of catch-up, uh, definitely, uh, in the past few months. So, you know, I, I, I'll try to get out three more episodes uh, in, you know, the, the next few kind of two months or so uh, till September, where hopefully then in September I'm going to try to, you know, either launch kind of a, a new season, so kind of season three. This was, I guess, season two, whereas the last summer was uh, season one. Uh, of the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast, um, if you want to call it seasons, but whatever. Uh, anyways, you know, I will be trying new things and sort of changing the way that I guess I, I release the podcast episode to, again, hopefully give you guys kind of the best podcast experience that you can get. So enough of introduction and, and all that. I think we should just get into today's episode which will be another episode about forgotten history. And so for those of you who don't know, I release every now and then these forgotten history episodes about Islam and Muslims to go into details about things that were impactful about Muslim history, either for a region or for Muslims in general. And I go into detail about the impact, the reasoning behind what happened, and as well as sort of the lasting effects of the historical significance. And so really, I hope to produce episodes like this so that we can reconnect with the past history that's happened and really get a better understanding of what led to now as to what came before and how that relates to what now, quote-unquote, is. And so for today's episode, I wanted to go into a monumental point in history in the lives of Muslims in South Asia. 
And for me, obviously, as a Pakistani, I mean, South Asia is where I come from and the region that I come from. So it is quite important to me as well in many ways. But more importantly, this topic relates specifically to Indian Muslims, who are also a big topic of discussion in recent months and recent years as well, given the state of affairs as to what's happening within India right now. So I thought it was quite a good time to talk about, for this episode, the destruction of Babri Masjid, or Babri Masjid, in Ayodhya, which is in northeastern India. I hope I pronounced that name right. I don't know if I got the name of the city right. Ayodhya, I think that's how you pronounce it. But essentially, what I want to focus on for today's episode is the destruction of this mosque. And more specifically, what led to its destruction, as well as kind of the uh, the reasoning that goes behind the destruction of the masjid. Because it's, it is important to really understand the people who destroyed it and why they wanted it destroyed. Not that we need to sympathize with them, because trust me, we don't. But I do think it's important to understand why this kind of thing happened. So today's episode will be part one of the episode, and in a week from now, or um, in concurrence with this episode, I'll also release part two of this podcast episode. And so that way, what it'll allow me to do, and this is really what I meant about, you know, taking more time to focus on topics, rather than just doing one episode and trying to cover something in, you know, 40 minutes, I'll try to do two podcast episodes That way I can go into more detail about different things and sort of give a better understanding about topics. And so for this episode, again, we will be focusing on the destruction of Babri Masjid and the events that led up to it. And so I think an important thing before we get into this, of course, with any history topic, I'm not going to get into every detail about the destruction, but I'll go into things that I thought were the most important. And I will also think, or at least I say that this is an important topic of discussion, but it's also important to understand that within India's complex history, especially during the 90s and, you know, up until now, a lot of things happened outside of just, uh, you know, the destruction of the mosque that impacted the destruction of the mosque as well. And so I will also say that I'm not an expert on Indian history, uh, or at least modern India, 1947 to now India. I'm not an expert in that history, so I'm not going to try to act like I am. So if I do get things wrong about Indian history or whatnot, and you're an Indian, please forgive me. Again, I'm not an expert in that topic. Now, just before I get into the history of Babri Masjid itself, I assume that there might be some people that maybe don't actually know about Babri Mosque or the destruction of Babri Mosque. And so to sort of give a very, 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 very short footnote Um, And and I will include a video in the description of uh, this podcast episode, so you can check that that, uh, video out to give more of a detailed look into sort of the events that led up to uh, the destruction of Babri Mosque. But essentially what happens with Babri Mosque is that it was a masjid that was built um, in the 16th century and was eventually destroyed by Hindu nationalists or who are basically Hindu radicals within India because they believe that it was built on top of Uh, a Hindu temple that revered one of their gods, and so they destroyed it. And so essentially, uh, this sort of event was obviously a a very, very big issue within India because India is a country that has multiple religions, including a major Muslim population. Although they are a minority within India, 
they also make up a large portion of the population. They make up millions within India. I, I think I remember reading a statistic that there's actually more Muslims within India than there are within Pakistan because that's just how big the Indian population is. And so essentially, of course, the destruction of Babri Masjid became a big catalyst for issues between those two communities and other communities as well. And so that is sort of my short, really, really short, like I said, really short, uh, kind of summary of what happened with the masjid. I, I don't want to get too much into that because, again, it is actually very complicated and it plays into a lot of things to do with Indian politics as well. And uh, since, again, that I am not an expert in Indian politics, I don't want to get too much caught up into this. I want to start first in the history of Babri Masjid itself because I think it's important to actually understand what led to its creation and sort of where this mosque actually came from. And so historians generally believe that Babri Masjid was originally built by Mir Baqi, who was a, a, a I guess, a, a friend or a, a person who fought alongside the first Mughal emperor, Babur. Uh, and so this would have been around the mid-16th century um, so about like the 1500s something, about, about 5050 around there uh, is when this masjid possibly was built. I don't remember if I got an actual year and they may not know the actual year, but I believe it is supposed to be in the mid 16th century. And so before its destruction, uh, the masjid was at least about 300 or 400 years old. So it's, it's not actually a new masjid. It's actually a very, very old masjid. Um, compared to you know some of the other masjids you might see in India, uh, it is actually quite an old masjid uh, in in that sense. Um, and so the the mosque itself was built in modern day Ayodhya, which is a city in northeastern India, and it is part of India's one of India's or I think it is actually the largest province. It's Uttar Pradesh, which is uh, basically one of the major provinces within India and. Um, again, if I am correct, I believe it is the most populous province within India as well. And so that also plays a part into the history of this masjid because it is sort of located smack dab right in the middle of, you know, one of the most populous areas in one of the most populous countries in the world. And the mosque itself was actually kind of irrelevant, if I can say that, for most of its history. It is not really recognized as, you know, a major mosque before its destruction. In fact, it, it kind of was one of many mosques that was built by Babur and the Mughals that came after him. Many of the Mughals built mosques, um, many that were actually a lot more famous than uh, Babri Masjid itself. And, you know, its, its design isn't even something that was that crazy or you know, inspiring in a sense. Like, e there are masjids that look much better if that's how you want to evaluate a mosque, that is. Uh, there are masjids that actually look much better than Babri Masjid. Babri Masjid is, you know, it was a very simple masjid in the way that it was built. It wasn't anything, again, you know, spectacular or sort of an icon of its area. It's not something like the Jumma Masjid in Delhi or the Badshah Mosque in, uh, in, uh, in Pakistan. Um, those masjids are, you know, much more iconic, much more, you know, well known, um, and but or sorry, uh, Babri Masjid is sort of, it, it was just sort of there, 
you know, and, and part of it was also because it does get closed down by the British uh, during some of the conflicts between Muslims and Hindus over the land. The British decision was to just sort of, uh, you know, kind of push people into two different, uh, different sections into worshiping on the area. So sort of the Muslims had their own area. I think it was in the mosque. Well, then Hindus had sort of an area off to the side where they were allowed to, to worship. And then um, if, I'm cor- if I'm correct in this, it's later when the incident sparks again, sort of conflicts around this masjid, that the Indian uh, government eventually just sort of shuts down this area as a disputed area. And so at one point, actually, Babri Masjid uh, is sort of abandoned, quote unquote, uh, because it's considered a disputed area. And so Muslims don't really go to it for prayer anymore. Um, and so it, it is even sort of more of a forgotten mosque, again, quote-unquote. But I guess what, my, what I'm trying to get at, and, and what I think is sort of important and also somewhat interesting, is that the mosque itself is, isn't iconic, right? Like, it was not some iconic mosque. You know, to some extent, you can actually say what makes the mosque iconic or what makes the mosque important is that it's destroyed by Hindu extremist groups. Right, it's actually kind of what makes the mosque a big deal, or you know, a big part of Muslim history, especially within South India. And and I think that's interesting because a lot of mosques around the world are usually given significance based on the historical events that happened around it. Usually, they're positive historical events. Um, but Babri Masjid, unfortunately, is one where it's actually a negative history or negative event that is you know, what gives this mosque its quote-unquote claim to fame. I, I also think it's important to point out that contrary to what some Hindu radicals claim, the mosque, there's not much proof uh, of the mosque's construction on top of any sort of, you know, temple or birthplace of, of a god in Hindu deities. There's no real evidence of that. There's also no real evidence that Babur or any of his companions willingly, and I think this is really important here, that they willingly built a mosque on top of, uh, you know, a temple or anything like that. So the history of it is sort of, uh, you know, it is somewhat muddled because, again, it wasn't an iconic mosque, so a lot of people didn't pay attention to it. But from what historians can find, for the most part, and from what documents kind of remain from its creation, is that it, it was just sort of a mosque that was built on some land, right? There was no real proof or evidence that the Muslims of that time willingly destroyed a temple or that they knew that there used to be a temple or if there ever was a temple actually on that land. And I really do think this is important because it is part of the history of this mosque, right? The mosque itself for many years just stood as a mosque, and there was no problems with it standing there. It sort of became a problem in more recent years, and not in its original history and the original construction as well. So moving on from the history, I wanted to get into some of, and not all of, but some of the claims that Hindus, and more specifically Hindu radicals, have towards Babri Mosque. But before I get into the claims and the details, I think it's important to understand within India and even within Hindu groups, especially within Hindu groups and Hindus themselves, 
as much as there are some people who support uh, the destruction of Babri Mosque or there are people who, you know, were willing to do it, there's just as many people who are against it across India and again across Hindu groups themselves. And so the destruction of Babri Mosque is not something that I think all Hindus agree with. And it's definitely not something that all Hindus support either. And it's definitely, definitely not something that is seen as a positive by a lot of people in India. Yes, I know that, you know, there's the Hindu radicals and there's some Indians who support that sort of ideology, but not all of them do and not all of them supported the destruction of the mosque. And I, and I think that that's really important before I get into the claims because I did call this section the Hindu claims. And so I don't want to make it sound like all Hindus agree with it because they don't. And so to kind of break this down into as simple as possible, because I don't want to get into too much detail because there's a lot of things about Hinduism. I'll, I'll honestly be, uh, I'll be honest here that I, I don't really know. It's not the religion that I understand the most and it's not a religion that I am well versed in either. So I don't want to get too much detail into some of the more religious topics, but to kind of break it down as simple as possible, I, I mentioned this earlier, but the main kind of claim, the, the main point of what Hindu extremist groups say is that Babri Masjid was built on the birthplace of Ram. Ram is one of the many gods within Hinduism, and, I, and from what I understand is that he is one of the major gods within the religion as well. And so he's seen as a very important figure, and therefore his birthplace, or quote-unquote his alleged birthplace, is supposed to be very important as well to many practitioners of the religion. And so then the claim goes that Babri Masjid was intentionally built by Babur and his companions on top of a temple where they either destroyed the temple or they purposely built the mosque on the ruins of a temple in the hopes of converting the Hindus and the non-Muslims of that area into Islam. And so what they tried to do or what the the allegation by some Hindu extremist groups is that they tried to destroy Hinduism in the area and that they also tried to basically force convert and push people into becoming Muslim by building a mosque on the place of a temple. Now, in a greater context, these claims that Hindu extremists make towards Babri Masjid are not that uncommon at all. In fact, it's actually a common idea within many Hindu communities or Hindu extremist groups, and primarily Hindu extremist groups, that uh, many Muslim rulers historically, and not just those of the Mughal Empire or even Babur himself, and this is to include basically all kinds of Muslim rulers, even Muslim rulers of Kashmir, of Hyderabad, of, Bang of Bangladesh, or Bengal, I guess it would have been called, a lot of these areas there's a claim that Muslim rulers would regularly destroy Hindu temples, temples for Sikhs, temples for you know other religions in hopes of converting people to Islam. And so you kind of see where the context of the Babri Masjid demolition or the idea, at least, of, of this perception that you know, Babri Masjid was built on top of a destroyed temple where it comes from. It's a common idea. It's this common perception across many of these Hindu extremists 
that a lot of mosques were built or a lot of temples that used to exist were destroyed by Muslims who, of course, then tried to, quote-unquote, convert everyone to Islam. And so this is, a, you know, a really important factor because it, it comes around to this sort of, this point or, or this perception that many of these groups have that Muslims are not only destroying temples, but they're trying to actively convert non-Muslims to Islam. Which is true, because giving da'wah is important, but giving da'wah is different than forcibly converting someone to the religion. And any good Muslim knows that. There's a difference between, you know, actually giving Islam to someone and forcing them to become Muslim. And so really that, that's where this sort of idea of, you know, Muslims trying to destroy, you know, quote-unquote Hinduism. Uh, again, they're trying to, quote-unquote, destroy it. That's the perception. And so to kind of, to make it right, the point is to go against this injustice, which is the destruction of Hinduism by Muslims. And so it, it is a central theme as to not only the history of Babri Masjid and the destruction of it, but also into a greater context, the way that many Hindu extremists view Muslims. They view Muslims within India and Muslims, you know, in Pakistan and Bangladesh and in Sri Lanka as these sort of, these people who are troublemakers, who want to destroy Hinduism, these enemies of Hinduism is basically how they view Muslims. And again, that's very important when it comes into the context of Barbary Masjid, but also, of course, the context as to what is in India at this time and to this day as well, because the RSS, which is, a, is one of many Hindu extremist groups within India, was instrumental in the destruction of Babri Masjid. And, and I'll get into this specifically in the next episode, but I do think it's important to point out about some of these names because they're important names for us to know. Names like the RSS, which is a name of a Hindu extremist group, or the BJP, which is the current ruling party within India, as well as the political wing for the RSS group, is currently in power in India. And so it's important for us to kind of have a good recognition of these terms so that we can get a better understanding of the internal politics within India right now. And of course, I also hope to encourage you guys to go look up these stuff on your own as well. Furthermore, another point to this claim of the Babri Masjid being on top of a temple that is dubious is that archaeologists that have actually done I guess you want to call digs into the area of Babri Masjid have not found conclusive evidence that any temple ever existed on the land. They've never found it. They've never found any conclusive evidence that there actually was a temple on this land. And, and in fact, you will find some archaeologists, and more specifically, you'll find some Indian archaeologists that will claim, they will claim that there are, that there is evidence that a temple was ever on this land. And from what I read is that much of this claim comes from them finding old stone and, you know, broken down walls and remnants of previous figures or, or previous structures, I should say, on the site of where Babri Masjid is. And as any archaeologist might tell you, and as I would say reading that or hearing about that, that that means absolutely nothing. 
India, and more specifically, South Asia, is, you know, people have been living there for thousands of years. Thousands of years. You are going to find remnants of old buildings all the time. It's a given fact. You will always find remnants of something there because thousands of years people have been living there. You know, if you go to Iraq, Iraq has thousands of years of archaeology as well. If you go to Rome or if you go to Greece, you'll find the same things. You'll find thousands of years of old history because people have been living there for a really, really long time. And so just the aspect of finding you know, old stone or old wood or anything like that is not enough of evidence to prove that there ever was a mosque that was built there in the first place. And so it is disappointing to hear archaeologists or some archaeologists, not all, but some try to justify the existence of a temple when all you're finding is, you know, old remnants of old buildings. You know, one thing that I was thinking when reading about this was that for all we know, there may have actually once been a temple that was built on the site of Babri Masjid. I mean, who knows? You know, it easily could have happened. Again, thousands of years of history, anything could have happened. So there could have easily been a temple that was built. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Babur or any Muslim emperor or king or sultan, whatever, for that matter, destroyed a temple to build the mosque. For all we know that in the mid-16th century, when Babur and his companions show up to the area of Ayodhya, and they find this one area, they may have just found an empty land. The temple may have already been destroyed if there ever was a temple, or whatever buildings existed on that land beforehand. For all we know is that it could have easily been destroyed by someone else, and just never built back, and then Babri Masjid comes along and is built. And it's not that the Muslim rulers of that time willingly, they are not willingly building a mosque on top of the land, but essentially they're accidentally building it. They didn't know any better. And it would make sense because in the mid-16th century, as you might assume, they didn't really do archaeology. That wasn't really a thing that people did, or at least not in the way that we do it in the modern sense. And so I think that that's really important because if I can easily create a scenario that makes sense, that defeats the idea that there was a temple, then it really brings into question the actual significance of those claims in the first place. And another thing that I found actually interesting, and one thing that always boggles my mind, is that in Hindu texts themselves and in many you know, historical perceptions or, uh, or I guess, theories as to where Ram, the Hindu god that is, was born. Uh, and this comes from actually Hindu texts themselves. But they actually give very conflicting ideas and multiple possibilities as to where Ram was actually born. I think that's hilarious. I think that's absolutely hilarious because you have this whole group that is so dead set on believing that Babri Mosque is the site of where Ram was born, and yet you have historical Hindus, or even just Hindu texts themselves, that don't actually give a birthplace for Ram. So the question is, how do they decide that where Babri Mosque is, is where you know Ram's birth was, and where a temple was? 
How? Could it be that maybe, just maybe, they're so Islamophobic, these groups are so Islamophobic, that they decided that the place where a mosque existed had to have been the area. Not with much proof or anything, because again, there is not much proof, if anything, even within Hindu texts themselves, because Hindu texts actually give conflicting answers or possibilities as to where uh, Bavri, or sorry, where Ram, uh, the Hindu god, was actually born. And so is it a coincidence, and I ask you this, is it a coincidence that the very place where a mosque exists is the same place that Hindu extremists, who are widely known for being Islamophobic, decide that Ram was built, or Ram was born? Is it a coincidence? I personally think not. So I'm sure that as many of you are listening, and you've probably picked on this by now, that most of the stances and the reasoning that went behind the destruction of Babri Mosque was extremely problematic. There really is, well, to put it bluntly, zero evidence, literally zero evidence that there even ever was a temple or anything of that sort as to you know, where Babri Masjid was built. And so essentially, Babri Mosque was destroyed for basically nothing. Um, although, and this is maybe something that will definitely anger some Muslims, although, you know, it, it is not that I'm, I'm encouraging people to get angry over this, because I'm not, um, but essentially now the Indian government is actually building a temple on top of where Babri Mosque used to stand. And so the Indian government, which is in itself uh, ruled by the BJP, which again is a part of the RSS, which is the Hindu extremist, uh, you know, the Hindu extremist group, they are, you know, basically the same thing, are now building a temple on the place of where the mosque used to be. And so they are essentially fulfilling the vision or the want of what these Hindu extremists wanted so many years ago, which is, of course, very upsetting if you're a Muslim. But again, I'm not encouraging people to get angry or upset or anything. But again, it, it is something that's very, let's just say, unfortunate that is happening within India today. Uh, and, I, and I will get into the, uh, the construction of the Ram Mandir uh, in uh, next episode as well. Uh, but I think for now, that's enough to, to talk about in that specific topic. What I wanted to move on to talk about now was sort of my problems with the Hindu extremist stance. And and I know I, I talked about this a bit, uh, you know, in the previous um, part, but I want to get more into detail here because there are other things that I haven't touched yet uh, that are problematic with the Hindu extremist stance. Um, and I think the first and most, you know, I guess, obvious thing is that there's no evidence. Right? So the question is, is how do so many people act upon something when there's no clear evidence? There's no archaeological evidence, as I mentioned. There was no historical evidence. There was no you know, political evidence. There's no documents that were found that proved any of this. And, and you know, the one thing that I, I realize now that I should have looked up, what I should have looked up and what I should have searched more into is just how you know, the Hindu groups came to this conclusion that Babri Masjid was the place where 
you know, Ram was not only born, uh, but also the place as to where, you know, the destruction of the temple and the construction of the mosque took place. So essentially, you know, uh, what what was the evidence? <laughs> there, there was none. And so it, it just, it comes back to this point of how did so many people believe this, right? Like, let's say I say to you, you know, there's a, you know, uh, there's a unicorn behind you, right? A unicorn, which is a, a it's not a real animal. It's a mythical animal. You're not going to believe me because you're going to say, well, that's not true, right? So it's the same thing here. It's like all these people were told that a unicorn was standing behind them and all they had to do was, you know, go get it. And in this sense, what they decided to do was destroy a mosque. And for what reason? Not because there's any evidence that the mosque was built on holy land or that the mosque destroyed a temple, but just because they wanted to. And I think that that's probably one of the more concerning facts about this whole demolition is that without evidence, people, Hindu extremist groups specifically, gathered together and publicly destroyed a mosque in front of everyone. They targeted Muslim communities, and in the aftermath of Babri Masjid's destruction, there were riots started across India where mainly Muslims were killed. So, yes, there was a lot of no-thinking happening during this time. It seems like collectively, and, and this is probably the most bizarre thing, like collectively, all these people decided to just shut off their brains. All of them. It's like they all just decided, I'm not going to listen to reason or fact, I'm just going to do what I want. Which is actually very common to the way things are going in some countries right now. So I'm sure some of you are probably listening to that thinking, no, it's not that crazy, it happens a lot. But it's just so bizarre. Right? It's so bizarre. Like, it's one thing to close your mind off and not like a certain group or, you know, people based on, you know, their religion or their background or their ethnicity, whatever. But for all these people to close their brains and not even think about the evidence and just destroy the mosque, it's it's remarkable. Right? Like, it's it's crazy and, and just remarkable. And I think it's it's disappointing, especially for, of course, the Muslims in that area, uh, because they're the ones that suffered the most because of Babri Masjid's destruction. Furthermore, another point that I thought was uh, interesting, and to kind of segue from, you know, the many issues that come with Babri Mosque, I also think there's actually a very, um, you know, a very, I guess, common sense reason as to why it made no sense, and it has primarily to do with the construction of Babri Mosque itself. Like I mentioned before, and in the beginning of the episode, Babri Mosque was built in the 16th century, right? And, and it was destroyed in the 20th century, right? The late 20th century, right before the 21st century, about, I'd say about maybe 10 years or six years before the, or, or before the year 2000, I think Babri Mosque was destroyed in the, in the early 90s, although I could be wrong. And so I think it's interesting to think about that the mosque itself was built in the 16th century and it took 400 years before it actually became a problem. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, think about this for a second. There are Hindus that were there when Babri Mosque was built, right? There were Hindus there. There were Hindus across India. There's also Hindus in, you know, the area of Ayodhya that saw Babri Mosque built. Right? And yes, it was built under a Muslim king, 
And, you know, the Mughals in the area, they ruled the territory for quite some time. Uh, but even then, there were other empires and rulers that came and went after, you know, the Mughals. And, and yet, and yet, seemingly, in those 400 years, nobody seemed to have a problem with the mosque. Right? Nobody had a problem. 400 years. And nobody of the Hindu community wants to destroy this mosque. You know, it, it, it's just so baffling. Isn't it? it it's, it's baffling in my opinion. You would think, you would think that if this mosque was built on such holy land, shouldn't the Hindus of that time been really angry too? Shouldn't they have been quite upset? I, I'd ask, and, I, and I'd love, I would love if, you know, someone would give me an answer, uh, but I feel as if, you know, the Hindu radicals won't really answer this question, but I'd love if one of them did. Why? were the Hindus of the 16th century not more upset? Or why were they not upset even afterwards in the 17th or 18th century that Babri Mosque was built on top of holy land? Why? Why, why were they not upset? Why were they not having a problem with that? I would argue, and I think that some of you have probably come to the same conclusion, is because it's not really holy land. It wasn't. It wasn't considered holy land for them, which is a huge point, right? It's a huge point. It was not considered holy land in the 16th century. That's why they didn't have a problem with it, because they didn't care. They didn't care that they built a mosque there. It was an irrelevant fact. And even after the Muslim empires ended, or you know, they kind of declined in the area, and other empires, even some Hindu empires, come and rule different areas... It's because of the fact that these areas were not holy and not significant for the Hindus of that time. That's why. And yet, now it's being treated as if this land was always holy for Muslims, or for Hindus, I should say, sorry. And even though we know, or at least I am coming to the conclusion, that it really wasn't. I, I also want to point out, and this is probably the last point here, uh, before I, I conclude this episode, but in another sense, th there was an important question that I saw raised in, in my research, and, and that was, why is the birthplace of a god, or at least the alleged birthplace of a god, which is an important point here again, why is that a place for ownership, right? Like, why is it that someone was born here, and then, you know, you can retroactively claim ownership of the land because essentially that's what they're saying right that uh, essentially that you know the muslims need to move because the land belongs to hindus but again ram is a god in hinduism he doesn't exist for them right now there's no you know person who could singularly claim the land because usually when lamb is land sorry is being claimed it's usually one person or, you know, a group, uh, you know, the family usually, that claim the land. So how is it that a, a god uh, that, you know, obviously is no longer on the earth, or at least I assume is no longer on the earth in terms of what Hindus believe in? Again, I will claim ignorance. I don't know that much about Hinduism, so I don't know if that's how it works. But nonetheless, it is an important question right? 
it's an important question to ask of how exactly is it uh, that, you know, you can claim a land for a god? Uh, because to me, that does seem somewhat bizarre. And, you know, another good point towards this is that Hinduism has a lot of gods. There's a lot of gods in Hinduism. And so, you know, how would you determine which gods can get to claim their land, right? How would you determine, um, you know, how, let's say, one god gets land and how the other god gets land? You know, where does that come from, right? Like, at, at what point do you draw the line? And, you know, is this a dangerous precedent? Because essentially you're saying to religious groups, especially Hindu extremist groups specifically, that if they find certain land belonging to, you know, a, a, uh, a god of theirs, then they can just retroactively claim the land, which doesn't make much sense. Because, again, that thing or the, the person uh, or, you know, the entity that you are claiming for is a god, which is, of course, in, in, um, you know, in many ways, supposed to be beyond the earth, right? So why are you claiming land for them? You know, why does it matter to them? This isn't to say that, you know, Hindus shouldn't get holy lands for themselves, but that, you know, the, the land could have been maybe distributed in a different way. It, it is, from what I could find, about 27 acres, which is, of course, quite big. So not being able to share the land is somewhat of a weird, uh, I guess you want to say weird reasoning, because in reality, I would think to some degree, you should be able to share the land, right? And, and across much of South Asia, and I'm sure in, in India, that there are many mosques and temples that are built side by side each other. So why was it now that couldn't be a, a situation, right? Or, or a compromise? The, essentially, the point is, because it wasn't just about destroying the mosque, it was also about intimidating Muslims. It's also about being Islamophobic, about hating Muslims. That's what has to go behind the idea of destroying the mosque, because the Hindu extremists are essentially such radicals <laughs> that they essentially cannot, you know, they, they don't want this possibility of Muslims being on the land that they would have to share, which is, of course, quite disappointing, but nonetheless is a central part to their rhetoric. Now, I think this is a good place to stop today's episode and, I guess, part one of the Babri Masjid episode. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, part two will be released concurrently with this episode or I will release it the next week after I release this episode. Um, again, it'll depend on how my schedule goes and if I'm able to edit and uh, publish the second episode. But anyways, I do hope you guys did enjoy uh, today's episode. I hope you guys uh, were able to learn some things about Babri Masjid uh, as well as sort of uh, the, the problems that go behind its destruction and the Hindu ideology that was used in its destruction as well. Uh, I, I, I think that this was an episode that I tried my best to go into as much detail into because, of course, I am making two episodes. Uh, so I hope that this episode was useful and, and uh, informational. Um, Babri Masjid, as I mentioned before, is a very important and monumental point uh, in Muslim history and is definitely something 
that has left a huge lasting impact on India today and you know is of course uh, an important thing for many Muslims across the world as well because India has uh, unfortunately become a major stone or I should say sorry a major point uh, in which a lot of Islamophobic and Islamophobia is shared throughout the world. So again, I hope you guys did enjoy today's episode and that it was informative. If you guys did enjoy today's episode, please don't forget to leave a five-star review at whatever podcast host you're listening to this from. Either a five-star review or like and follow the podcast. Um, I really would uh, suggest that you guys follow the podcast if you guys enjoyed this episode. Because if you follow the podcast, then you will get notifications as to when I upload new episodes. And you'll be able to watch them as soon as they come out. So please, again, do like uh, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, And also, if you did enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it with others. Uh, I'm sure if you enjoyed it, you know, others will as well. And also, of course, it'll help me grow the podcast and make me more consistent in making podcast episodes. Um, In addition, of course, as always, I say this, but please go check out my social media pages. Uh, It's at MIB podcast. That's at capital M-I-Y-B and then podcast. The P in podcast is capital and then just the rest of the word podcast. So again, to repeat, it is at MIB podcast. I am on both Twitter and Instagram, um, so please don't forget to go check out my page and to subscribe to both my Instagram and my Twitter page. I post a variety of stuff. Usually on Instagram, I will post sort of episode um, updates or you know reminders for the next upcoming episodes. Whereas on Twitter, I kind of have more of a you know I kind of share my thoughts every now and then, and I sort of share tweets that I find useful. Um, and I'm gonna try to also I also do post actually uh, the episodes on Twitter as well, um, because, you know, it it just kind of allows me to share the episode to a a wider audience uh, as well. So please don't forget to go check out my Twitter and Instagram pages as well. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on this episode or on, you know, previous episodes as well. Um, It really would help me make the podcast better if you guys do give me feedback, because again, then I can sort of incorporate the feedback into how I deliver and produce the podcast. And with all that being said, I hope again that you guys did enjoy today's episode. I, for one, did enjoy researching and reading about it. And don't forget that next week's episode or the next episode after this one will be about Babri Masjid Part 2, where I'll go more into sort of the lasting impact of the destruction of Babri Masjid. So, there we go. That is the conclusion of today's episode. Inshallah and Alafis will meet again.